All right, well, tonight we're in Romans chapter 11. We're not going to quite finish it tonight because, uh, and actually tonight's study is going to be probably a little shorter than what most of them have been uh, because uh, I, there's a, a couple, a few verses right at the very end that is basically a hymn of praise that Paul uh, writes at the end of chapter 11. And I, wanted, I really want to deal with that separately uh, uh, next week. And so tonight we're, 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 we're going to, uh, probably uh, cut it a little bit shorter than what we have been, but we've been talking in Romans chapter, really chapter nine through eleven. We've been talking a lot about God's future plans for Israel, and 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 I want to I want to say at the very beginning, and I've said it many times already, that I believe that God has a plan for national Israel. That that is for the people who are blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, and He has a plan. That, that, uh, and it's a plan for a, a big, uh, massive prosperity for their future like nothing they've ever experienced before. However, you know, there, there are many people who have been taught otherwise. And there are many people who are unaware uh, that there are unfulfilled promises that God has made to Israel. And, uh, you know, for example, he talks about a time when, when, uh, in, in, when in, I believe it's in Isaiah where he says, he talks about how he will... God will rule the nations from Israel. Um, well, that hasn't happened yet. So we know that there are promises that are yet to be fulfilled that God has made to Israel. And when you begin to talk about God's future plans for Israel, there, there are some people that, that begin to teach that, that the church replaced Israel in God's promises. That's, that's an idea called replacement theology, or there, another word for it is, is a, little, a little big, kind of more technical word is supersessionism which just means the idea that they superseded Israel, they took their place. But we need to understand that Israel and the church are not the same things and that one does not replace the other. And we'll just touch really, really very briefly a little bit on that, not much at all. But in the previous studies in Romans 9 through 11 that we've done, especially the last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about Israel. We've talked a lot about God's plan for Israel and We've talked a lot about how there is a partial blindness or a partial hardening for a season and all of these, <clears throat> excuse me, all of these different things. And I'm not going to go through that again. I'm not going to reteach the same material, but if you missed any of that, you can watch the videos or listen to the audio of those messages online at our website. You can, go, you can find that at restorationlifechurch.tv um, and uh, you'll see there's a place there for messages or sermons and and you can watch those. But let's pick it up tonight in Romans chapter 11, verse 24. It says this, For if you were cut out, uh, out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Now we talked last week about the concept of, of, of grafting in. About, and we talked about how the Gentiles were grafted into this olive tree, which is Israel, and, and re- relating to the promises of Israel. Uh, you know, as a Gentile, uh, I'm, the, I'm the wild one that's been grafted in. Uh, and and the, what he's saying is, if I, as a Gentile, as a wild branch, can be grafted into these truths and grafted into these promises... This, this messianic deliverance and salvation that comes through Jesus. If I can be grafted into this, then how much more natural is it for a Jew to be grafted back into the tree? You know, e- even if they previously rejected Jesus as, as Messiah, 
that, that he's saying there's still hope because even those branches that were broken off, they can still be grafted back into the tree. And it's, it's actually easier to graft them back in than it is for a Gentile to be grafted in. So, so far from suggesting that, that it's impossible for the Israelites to be saved, Paul is saying that it's natural for there to be this messianic reception amongst the Jewish people. And the, the context of Romans 11 says that, that those branches were broken off, that most of Israel, that, that they were broken off, meaning that the majority of the Jewish people rejected Messiah uh, there in the first century. Uh, so so uh, they're, they're being grafted in is what? They're, they're being grafted in back in is talking about the majority of Israel receiving Messiah at a later date. And that's the contrast that we're seeing here. But let's, let's keep reading in verse 25 and he'll explain some more. For I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. By the way, most of the time when you see mystery in the New Testament, it's not talking about, we think of mystery as something that is a puzzle that you have to try to figure out. Generally what mystery means in the New Testament means it's something that has not been seen or revealed up to this point in time that now God has revealed. So, so when he talks about a mystery, he's saying, I'm telling you something that maybe hasn't been clear in the past, but now it's been made known. For I, for I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, lest you uh, be wise in your own estimation, for a partial hardening has come upon Israel until, and I, I would underline that word until, that's a very important word, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now there is a danger in Romans eleven twenty five, as as he's coming to the conclusion of his teaching on Israel, and the danger is that that you will, as a Gentile, you will begin to think we are better than the Jews. That's the danger, uh, and the irony in that is that the Gentile, uh, the the Gentile now taking the attitude of, uh, in that case, would be taking the attitude of some of the Jewish people of the past. Uh, when they used to think we are better than the Gentiles, you know, and so, you know, then, you know, as Christians, we look at them and say, oh, Pharisee, self-righteous, whatever. And we look over at the Jewish people and, and, you know, say things like, oh, they'll, they would never receive their hearts are hard. Their eyes are blind. And, you know, we're just feeling all good about ourselves and that sort of thing. But the thing is, if that happens, then all that's happened is that we have switched places and, and we have become the proud and arrogant one instead of the, the Jewish person who was looking down on Gentiles. And, and when our attitude has to be, I was blind, but now I see. You know, it's got to be just simply, you know, that's what I love about the, of course, that phrase comes out of the story of the man who was born blind and who was healed by Jesus. And uh, the Pharisees, they pull him in and, and interrogate him and and they're asking him, who did this and all this? And he's saying, listen, I don't know these things. You're supposed to know this stuff. You're the religious experts. And they get on him and he said, listen, I don't know about any of that stuff. I don't know anything about all your religious activities, all your theology. He said, this is all I know. I was once blind and now I can see. And that's what we have to understand. This is, you know, it's not about understanding or beginning to think, well, you know, is this right? Is that wrong? It's, it's not about understanding all the details of the theology, but it's understanding that I was once blind. Now I can see. Um, the, the truth is the same revelation of Jesus Christ that we've received can be received by anyone at any time. So he's saying, don't be wise in your, in your own opinion. 
We, we don't want to have Jew, or Gentile pride any more than we want to have Jewish pride or, or really any other kind of pride. Any, any sort of pride parade is really a bad idea. You know, you, you, you can, you know people say you, you, can, you can walk around, you can have this pride in your culture, you know, where like somebody, somebody might be something like, I'm Irish, yay, you know, whatever. Well, that's, that's great, but, but, but there's nothing to be arrogant about or self-righteous about in those things. I mean, I mean think about it. What did you do to get that? You were born. <laughs> that's it. That's all, that's all you did to get whatever culture you're from. You were born. That's all you did. So, so why have pride in something that was given to you by God? You didn't choose what culture you were born into. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a little foolish. I mean, I understand, you know, to, it's, it's not a bad thing to have uh, you know, pride saying, well, I'm proud to be this, you know, from this country or whatever. But, but to understand even in that, you have to, you have to realize in, in the middle of that, I didn't choose to be born here. God put me here. And so even, even in that, we have to be grateful to him if we have a great culture, if we, even if we have a great heritage. That's the same thing for the Jewish person. They have an amazing heritage when you read the, the Bible. But you know what? They can't be proud in that. Because it's a blessing from God to them. And so, so anyway, pride you know, is just something we need to, we need to avoid altogether. But, but let's look at this. He says, in that verse, he said that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And he uses this term. He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What is the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, in the context of Romans 11 really 9 through 11, what, what we're learning is the gospel is going out to, to the Gentiles and what's happening is that large number of Gentiles are receiving the gospel. So this idea of the fullness of the Gentiles is the idea that eventually you'll get to the, to the end of that season. You, you'll get to the, eventually you'll get to the end of the time where there are many, many Gentiles receiving the Savior. Then, here's the thing, because he says until. So that means something's happening and then at this point in time, something changes. And he says, that's when the fullness, excuse me, then when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, when that's done, which we don't know, you know, only God knows how, when that moment of time is going to be. But then what happens next? Based on verse 25, what seems to be happening is that after the fullness of the Gentiles the hardening of Israel, the blindness of is, that's upon Israel is lifted. He, he wrote, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, so then the hardening is lifted. And we've already seen in Romans 9 through 11 that, that this hardening, this blindness is a, is a rejection of the gospel. That's what he means when he's talking about this hardening of his partial hardening of Israel or this blindness of Israel. So, so then to take the opposite, to understand this, that means that if this hardening is lifted, what are we seeing? He's talking about a reception by Israel of the gospel of Christ. He's saying when this is all done, this partial hardening that God has used, that he has created, he has caused this and he's created this in order to push the gospel to the Gentiles. He says when that part is all done, then he is going to soften their hearts again. They're going to be, become open and receptive to, to the gospel. And there's going to be, uh, um, uh, in this context, this is a large number of Jewish people in some future time receiving Messiah. Now, has that happened yet? No, I don't, I don't think so. Not yet. 
Um, so, so, so look back a few verses to Romans chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. And, and well, I'm going to read it again. Uh, but I want you to keep in mind this idea of the fullness of the Gentiles because you're going to see something that's related. You'll see how Paul is, is comparing and contrasting a couple of things. Uh, but it says in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fail? God forbid. We talked about that last week. That's Israel. Uh, and, and he's saying they haven't, they haven't fallen permanently. It's not over for them. It's a stumble, but it's not a complete destruction. He goes on and says, but through their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So because they rejected the gospel, the, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles to make, says to make them, speaking of Israel, jealous. Verse 12, now if their transgression means riches for the world and their failure, or we talked last week, that can also mean lack. Their lack means riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their what? Their fullness mean. So, so you see this contrast. They're lacking right now because they are largely rejecting the gospel. That's their lack. But how much more will their fullness be? There's a time coming when the Gentile fullness is coming in and then the Jewish fullness will come after that. And we're, what we're talking about here is gospel revival. We're talking about massive revival among the Jewish people. And, and that, that word fullness is referring in, to the Gentiles is referring to this big work of gospel reception among the Gentiles. And then he says, when that's done, there will be a big work of gospel reception among the Jewish people as well. Now, all of that uh, that I'm saying flows very naturally right into verse 26. And verse 26 says, And so all of Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now, this is where I mentioned the idea, the concept of replacement theology at the beginning where they say that, that the Israel is now done, that the church has replaced Israel. All of the promises of God now relate to the church and Israel is out of the picture. And, and this is how a person who believed that this is how they would handle this verse. They would say, when you read that verse, they would say that, that the word Israel in verse 26 is referring to something other than national Israel or ethnic Israel. And by ethnic, I mean of the blood, bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Now, but there's a really big problem with that approach. And I think if you think Israel in this passage just means the church or it just means everybody who believes in Jesus, both Jew and Gentiles, then, then here's the question, here's the problem. How is it then... That in verse 25, verse, just one verse before, it clearly did not mean that. I mean, let, let's just be consistent, right? Paul, Paul's not going to use the word Israel to mean two totally different things from one verse to the next, right? Let, let's read them together, verse 25 and 26. For I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, lest you be wise in your own estimation. For a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is a clear contrast between Israel and Gentiles. There's no question here that he's talking about two different people groups. Israel is, is, is not just the church. He's talking about Israel versus the Gentiles. So he's talking about national Israel. Then verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. It's the same Israel as verse 25. Doesn't that make sense? 
Don't you, can you see that? It, it, really, listen, this is just 101 Bible study techniques. You, you read, read it as it is. You, you read it in the context. And, and uh, he says, and so all Israel be, will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now he, he will remove ungodliness from whom? Jacob. What was Jacob's name after he wrestled? Israel. He's talking again. Obviously, he's not talking about Jacob as a person in this contest. context. He's talking about this again then is the nation of Israel. This is, as I said earlier, this is a prophecy of Jewish revival. And, and he's quoting there in the last part of verse 26. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 59 verse 20. We're not going to read that tonight. But here's a little side homework. If you want to write this down, uh, I think it'd be really helpful to you if you'd like to do this little side homework. I know some people hear the word homework and they break out in a rash. So if that's you, don't, you don't have to do it. But, but if you read from Isaiah chapter 59, starting in verse 20, and you just keep reading right on through all the way to, through chapter 62, you will see how this, this passage talks about this great revival of blessing and, and, and of God's work in Israel. So it's very consistent with what Paul is saying here. Paul in the passage in Romans 11 talks about Israel and, and talks about uh, that the, the, when the fullness of the Gentiles is over, when it's done, that this great revival is going to break out in Israel. And then he mentions this passage in the Old Testament where it speaks of these very things, this spiritual blessing coming upon them as well as the blessing of the land. Then verse 27, he goes on, he says, For this is my covenant with them when I, sh- when I shall take away their sins. This is my covenant with them when I shall take away their sins. Again, he's talking about Israel. And, and he's again also, he's, he's also, this verse is also quoting from Isaiah 59. In the, in, in, the, in the first part, the first verse, in verse 26, he quoted from Isaiah 59, 20. Now he's quoting from verse 21, except there's something odd here. That end phrase where he says, when I shall take away their sins, is not found in Isaiah 59, 21. It's just not there. So let me give you just a short version of a commentary deba- debate that goes on. Why is Paul quoting this phrase that's not actually found in the Old Testament passage? And and listen, it's it's not that it's just worded a little differently. The the phrase, when I shall take away their sins, nothing like that appears in the passage in Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. So what's Paul doing here? There are really, really a couple of options. One option is that he's actually quoting Isaiah 27, 9. And then, he, and so he's jumping across chapters and combining two different verses, which they often did. Uh, in uh, rabbis of that time, often did that. In fact, you know, we we do that as well. We really do. Uh, you, you take one concept from one place in Scripture, and then you take another concept from another place in the Bible, and then you put them together. And then we, so that's how we come up with things where we say something like, "For God so loved the world that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly." Now, I combine these ideas, I, I, I smash together these two verses, right? Uh, John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. However, the concept actually makes sense and it is biblically accurate. You know, I'm, if I say that, I'm actually teaching something that's true and I'm teaching a fuller picture of, of what the scripture teaches by combining the two verses, right? 
So, so that, that's possible that that's what Paul's doing. However, here, here's what I think he may actually be doing. Here, here's another option. I, I, don't, I don't personally, I don't think he's quoting Isaiah 27.9. I think what he's doing is that he's paraphrasing what Isaiah 59 is about in general. Because if Isaiah 59, uh, if you read it, looking, leading up to verses 20 and 21, it talks about how Israel is dealing with their sins and their transgressions are too much for them. And then God comes and delivers them from their sins. So Paul summarizes that with that one little statement. And he's just reminding of this. He's, he's, he's looking at the whole chapter of Isaiah 59 and saying, don't lose the point. Don't lose the point of this. There is a time when God is going to remove the sin from Israel and bring salvation to them. And at the same time, there will be this prosperous blessing. So I hope that makes sense. But let's keep reading verse 28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regarding the election, they are beloved for the sake of the patriarchs. Now, I want to say this, and I want to spend a lot of time on it, but there's that word election again. Again, it's the same thing we talked about last week. If you load all kinds of theological meaning into a word, and every time you read that word, you think it has to mean that entire theological meaning, you're going to get really confused because I don't believe this is talking about the election of the saints like uh, many Calvinists would say. I believe that that's just talking about being chosen because that's what the elect is. It's just to be chosen. And so uh, in this context, he's, he's not talking about the gospel as far as the election goes. He's talking about God's choosing Israel, about how he God, cho- God chose Israel. And, and again, this is talking about Israel. He's consistently talking about national Israel throughout all of these verses. And that's why in verse 28, he says that they're enemies. So obviously, this is first century unsaved Jewish people. He's not talking about Jews that, that are saved, Jews that have received Jesus as their Messiah, because, because they're not your enemies, right? I mean, if so, he'd be saying that the church is your enemy. That, that's not what he's saying here. He's talking about first century unsaved Jews whom Paul still considered to be, to be Israel. This is consistent all the way through. So they're considered enemies for your sake. He's talking to Gentiles, Gentile Christians here. They're considered enemies for your sake because they're opposed to the gospel. They're against it. They're rejecting it. However, he says that that concerning the election, again, the choosing of God of Israel, they are beloved for the sake of the patriarchs. Now, who who are the patriarchs? Well, the patriarchs, of course, that's referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the patriarchs. So let me read to you from Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. This is what God spoke to Abraham. This is a promise that he made. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an, what does it say? An everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. All the land of Canaan where you now live as strangers, I will give to you and to your descendants for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Now, you know, in, just in casually reading the, this passage, if you were a descendant of Abraham, you'd be thinking, hmm, I think I'm supposed to be living uh, in that land at some point. Something is supposed to be happening here. That's how you would take the passage, right? 
And, and then this covenant, this same, same covenant is repeated to, uh, first he says it to Abraham, but then it's repeated to Isaac. Then it's repeated to Jacob. But that covenant is not ever repeated in Scripture after that. It's carried on to Jacob, whom we already have established, who was later renamed Israel, which, by the way, that's why that's the namesake of the nation of Israel, because it went through from Abraham to Isaac to, to Jacob slash Israel, and that's why Israel is known as Israel, because that's the line of the promise right there. Uh, and, 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 and it, but, it, but that's why the namesake is Israel, for, for, for those people who would inherit this promise. Remember, Abraham had other children. He had other children, but, but the promise goes through this line. And so that's why the namesake, that's why they're called Israel. You describe the people who would receive, who would inherit this promise as Israel because it goes through Israel. Then in verse 29, and listen, and this is a very famous verse quoted often out of context, but I feel like Romans 11 is so clear when you study it in context. Verse 29 says this, For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Why does Paul say this here? Because God has promised the, uh, Israel, He has promised them something, and Paul is simply saying He can't take it back. He, he can't, he's not going to take it back. He cannot lie. Now, I think, I think it's important to notice it says that it is irrevocable. It does not say that it's irresistible. There's a big difference between the two. While God will not take back what he has offered, we are certainly able to reject that what he has offered. In fact, isn't that what Israel did many, many times in their history? They, they rejected the God of the covenant and said, no, we want to do whatever we want. We can do the same thing. God offers us promises today and, and the promise is irrevocable. The promise stands true for, from now and throughout eternity that the offer is there, the promise is there, that Jesus has paid the penalty for my sin. That is there, that is irrevocable. However, it is not necessarily irresistible. It means that I can reject, I can resist, I can say no to that God. But, but, but he is saying that God will do what he promises. God will do what he promises. God made an unconditional promise about the land. We just read it. He said to Abraham, he, it was going to be an everlasting covenant and they were going to take the land as an everlasting possession. And there was no, if you do this, then I will do that. It was just a, it was simply, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to make this happen. Now, the law came later. And it introduces, you know, curses and blessings and all those sorts of things where he says, if you do this, then this will happen. If you do the bad thing, then this curse will happen. But, you know, you, you might be able to just quote Paul, what he says in Galatians and apply it to this because to kind of paraphrase it. He said, the law, which came 400 years later, does not annul the covenant. God made a promise and God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Now, the law certainly was there to show the depravity of man. It, it was there to, it shows the broken, how broken mankind really is. But, but yet, in the middle of all that, this is the gift and calling of God to Israel that is irrevocable. That's the context, isn't it? He's talking about Israel and the promises of God to Israel. So he's saying, God calling you to be his people and the promises he made, that, that is irrevocable. 
Now, you may have read Romans eleven twenty nine and, and thought that it applies to gifts that God has given to you in your life and calling that God's given you in your life. But let me just say this. While there's an application in our lives, before we apply it there, we need to apply it to Israel. We need to start with Israel. If we're going to be consistent and we're going to uh, uh, interpret Scripture uh, properly according to what the context of where it is, I have to start there and say, and say no, he, he, that he is talking about Israel. That's the point. And this sort of seems to seal the deal that, of this, this promise, this future for Israel that God has. This verse in context is about Israel's future. In particular, what it really says, it says the people in verse 28 who are enemies of the gospel, they yet have a glorious future according to the irrevocable promise of God. That's the context of this passage. So this seems to me to seal the deal about this glorious thing for Israel. But then once you make that application, then you can apply it to yourself. And you can say to yourself, here's what I believe the application is. You know what? God's grace upon Israel is a reflection of his grace upon me. And if he is going to be faithful to his promise to Israel, I know he's going to be faithful to his promise to me. That's the reflection there. And, and so now I can read about Israel and all the things they did. And, and I, can, I can feel pretty good about God enduring with them through all of their hardships, through all of their rebellion, through all of their betrayal, through, through their whatever they've done. And, and frankly, whatever I've done, you know what I'm talking about. So then I can apply, apply, apply it to myself. However, verse 29 I think it's been misused sometimes. It is not about every single thing God ever calls anyone to do. That's not what it's talking about. Think about it. God, God called, called Saul to be the king of Israel. But then later he rejected Saul. Didn't he? So, so this is not saying that every time God calls somebody that it's a permanent call. You know, it's not like pastor that embezzles from his church and cheats on his spouse. And then he's like, the gifts and calling of God are irrevoc- irrevocable. You can't fire me. You know, because you're like, yes, we can. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> right? Trying to apply the verse like that would be completely taking it out of context. The, the primary application is to Israel. The secondary application is that is that if God is is faithful to his promise to Israel, then I know he'll be faithful in his promise to me. Because he doesn't love me less than he loves Israel. And he doesn't love Israel less than he loves me. If he's faithful to one, he's faithful to the other. Because he is a faithful God. That's just who he is. Then in verse 30, as we continue, it says, For just as you once were disobedient to God. Now remember, he's, now he's writing to Gentiles. The last few verses, he's been addressing Gentiles talking about Israel. He says, for just as you, speaking of the Gentiles, just as you were once were disobedient to God, but have now received mercy through disobedience. Now, and that's a really a summary of how Jewish rejection of the gospel, excuse me, led to Gentile reception of the gospel. They disobeyed the, so, uh, God and rejected the gospel. So then the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. So we've now received mercy through their disobedience. Verse 31. So these also have now been disobedient, talking about Israel. These also have have now been disobedient, that they also may receive mercy by the mercy shown you, shown to you. So let me try to rephrase it, because Paul, he can say things that you're, 
you have to read it like three times and you still scratch your heads, right? You know what I'm talking about? And so he's saying, you as a Gentile were disobedient to God in the past, but you received mercy because you heard the gospel as a result of the Jewish people rejecting the gospel. And he's saying in the same way, these Jewish, Jewish people who are now being disobedient to God by rejecting the gospel will receive mercy because of the mercy that you've received. Let, let me, let me, Israel largely rejected Jesus. Israel will largely receive him. That's what I'm reading in the text. The job for us now is to reach out to the Jewish people the gospel. He's saying, you've received the mercy. Now he's going to give the mercy to Israel through us. And, and so our job is to reach out to the Jewish people the gospel. And for that matter, to the Palestinians and to reach out to the Canadians, you know, those heathens up north. And if there's somebody in Canada watching on the live stream, forgive me, you know. Um, and to the, you know, to, we have the Texans and we got to reach out to the Californians. Lord, we got to reach out to the Californians. You know how it is. And, you know, or we got to reach out to the Chinese or the Japanese or the Taiwanese or whomever else you can, you can think of. Our job, obviously, is to reach out to everybody. But as we reach out to the Jewish people, I can't help but think about and be kind of excited about God's future plans for these people and to know that their reception of, of the gospel of Jesus is going to bring in some really wonderful things into the world. That's what Paul, he's been talking about here in Romans 11. And, and this takes us back, this whole idea of they'll receive mercy. Uh, it says they also may receive mercy by the mercy shown to you. This takes us back to the idea that he referred to earlier uh, about uh, that we're supposed to make Israel jealous. That, that our receiving the mercy of God will provoke them to jealousy. Now that phrase, to provoke them to jealousy to us in our world seems really just kind of weird, doesn't it? I mean, because we usually think of jealousy as a negative thing, don't we? That's, how we, that's the context. Sometimes, however, let me just kind of say this. Sometimes we sort of, we tend to confuse the idea of jealousy and envy. And they're two different things. But we tend to use them as one thing. They're not the, one, the, the same thing. Envy is when you want something that someone else has. You know, so your neighbor gets a new car and you say, man, I want that car. And you envy them for that car or whatever. Jealousy is the idea that you want to keep that which you, which you believe already belongs to you. Okay, so if you envy your neighbor's wife, you want a wife that, that doesn't belong to you that belongs to somebody else, right? But if you're jealous of your wife, that means that you want to hold on to something that you believe belongs to you. You're afraid that she's, you know, flirting with other people or other men are trying to, you know, uh, trying to, to, to get in with her or whatever. And so you, you're, you become jealous because you, you feel like uh, she's your wife and you don't want. And, and listen, that can get ugly. And sometimes, you know, you know, jealousy can become very perverted in this world and and where, where people can become jealous for no reason, that sort of thing. But, 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 the, but the, the, just the concept of jealousy is not necessarily a bad thing. And I say that because the Bible says that we serve a jealous God. So if jealousy in and of itself, if that means something bad, then how can God be a jealous God, right? 
Because if he's a holy God, he can't have a flaw in his character if, if jealousy is a character flaw. It's when jealousy gets perverted by our, our sinful nature that it gets really bad. Uh, but, 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 but serving a jealous God, you know what that means? That just means that he is at work to keep that which already belongs to him, us. When he's jealous, that's what he's, he doesn't want us serving another God because we belong to him. He, our worship belongs to him. So when we worship some, something else, that's, that's his, the idea behind it. So to provoke Israel to jealousy, here's what I think he's talking about. I believe that it means that, that, that they then, for those who are believers in, in Jesus, that, that Israel begins to see the blessings of God that they believe belongs to them, right? And they see that the blessings of God resting upon the Gentiles, and as they see God's blessing resting upon them, they say, hey, that's supposed to be mine. I'm supposed to be living under the blessings of God. And so then Paul is saying what he wants and what he prays for is that they will begin to rethink their rejection of Jesus because they'll begin to realize that he's the actual doorway into the blessings that God has promised to them through faith in Jesus. So I think that's what he's talking about here with this whole concept. Verse 32, for God has imprisoned them all in disobedience so that he might be merciful to all. Uh, and this is the this is the end point weaving together everything that he said in Romans. You know, we, we've already talked about some of these things. You know, when Adam sinned, all humanity sinned with him. We are all sinners. And when people choose to follow their own passion and their desires, they're, they're bound in their disobedience. We, we, we put our chains on ourselves. We imprison ourselves because of that. And uh, when we deliberately choose to disobey God, and we, we know those verses, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.9 says both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. And this is what Paul has been trying to get to the whole time, and that Jews and Gentiles are all under condemnation, but they're all in this place so that God can show how gracious he is. As difficult as it may be for us to understand, God's handling of the Jews and the Gentiles is intended to expose all of us to his mercy. He shows how gracious he is with Israel because he gives them the land even though they don't deserve the land. He just gives it to them. It was an act of grace, that covenant. He shows his, how gracious he is with us because we don't deserve Jesus. We, we don't deserve anything except for judgment and death. But, but God's grace and mercy is what gives us everything we have in life. It's all by His grace. It's all by His mercy. I have nothing in my life that I have earned. It's all been given to me by grace. And somebody says, no, that's not right. I worked hard for the stuff that I own. Who gave you the ability to do what you do to earn the money that you earn? God. Still a gift of grace. Still an act of mercy. But you know, it's those who understand that, that they have been saying no to God are, are those, those are the ones who are in the best position to say yes to it. When you recognize it, that's where repentance comes. And, and you know, God here, he's seen as this glorious God of grace and mercy. And, and he, I believe this. I believe we will understand this so much more when we stand before him 
and we see his holiness and we realize our own fallenness because I don't think, I don't think we can grasp the, de- the, the depth of his holiness, but I also don't think we fully grasp the depth of our fallenness. So when we see his holiness and we see our sinfulness, we, the, listen, the more you get to know God, the more you realize that, how, that that gap is far bigger than you ever thought it was. And when we stand before him, I, I think we'll understand it so much more when we stand before him and we see that gap and we see how holy he is and how, how totally broken and, and fallen we are. And we will begin to realize what it meant for him to send his son to die on a cross to pay for what we've done. That's when we'll really begin to understand grace in its fullness. And, you know, as we, as we close tonight, and we're, we're going to end there because we're, we're going to get into this hymn of praise in, in verses 33 through 36 next week. And, and it's really, there's so much there I want to be able to take some time. We just wouldn't have time to do all of it tonight. But, um, but as we do this, you know, as we close this tonight, I think it's really important for us to uh, just to end on that place where we remember grace. We remember that, that uh, we all, Jew and Gentile alike, that, that we don't deserve anything, but everything that we have has been given to us as a gift from God. It's, it's His grace. It's His mercy. And in the middle of all that's happening, and in the middle of all the despair, and all the brokenness that we see, all that does is make the grace of God shine that much brighter when we see it. And so, you know, don't, don't let, don't fall into condemnation. He said in Romans eight, you know, there is no condemnation. You can't be in Jesus and, and be condemned at the same time. It's impossible. Those are two different positions. So don't fall into condemnation and say, oh man, you know, I'm just dirty, rotten sinner. And because, because we all sin, don't we? Anybody here, you know, you got to, have you, have you uh, gotten through the week so far without sinning? Uh, well, you know, and if you raise your hand, you, you probably just, you know, sin with pride. So you, you just messed up. Uh, but see, instead of getting on ourselves and saying, I'm such an idiot. Well, yeah, we are idiots. <laughs> That's true. There's some truth there. But instead of staying there, we, we begin to realize. But you know what? God is faithful to Israel. His, his gifts and calling to Israel are, are irrevocable. He's never going to turn his back on Israel. And if he's not going to turn his back on Israel, I know he's not going to turn his back on me. And then we say, thank you, God, for your grace that even in the midst of my sin, even when I blow it, you still don't give up on me. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray together. Father, just thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that goes way beyond anything that we can begin to understand. And, and Lord, I, I believe when that day comes and we stand in your presence that we'll, we'll then begin to finally grasp just what you really did for us and how amazing your grace really is and how, how wide that chasm was and, and what it really means that you, that you came and you crossed that, that great divide and you, you made a way, you paid for our sins. And Lord, I pray that instead of walking in sin and condemnation, Lord, that we would have appropriate repentance, that we would, we would be broken in our hearts for those times when we are disobedient to you, those times when we miss the mark, Lord, that we will have appropriate 
repentance, Lord God, and sorrow, appropriate sorrow, but Lord, rather than wallow in, in condemnation and self-pity, God, that we will be driven to wonder and driven to awe as we, as we worship a God and realize that we have a God that is never going to turn his back on us. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to walk in that grace and Lord, not only to walk in it for ourselves, but Lord, to, to tell other people, to tell other people about the grace that you have and that they don't have to live in condemnation and guilt, but that they can walk in freedom in Christ. And we give you thanks in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.